Hi, welcome to our lesson for this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 19. That's where we're going to be uh, looking at this morning, Matthew 19 and 20. So our class for this morning is titled Questions for the King. And we're going to be doing an overview of the things that happen in these two chapters, um, chapter 19 and chapter 20. And we're going to especially focus on the questions that Jesus was asked for um, this context and, and in these uh, few passages here. So we're not allowed to go on road trips at the moment, or at least none that exceed 150 kilometres. Um, maybe you had to pull out of a road trip recently. I know Hannah and I uh, were planning to go to Victoria in April, and we had all of our audio books ready to go. I um, looked into a bunch of podcasts that we were ready to listen to. We had hours and hours worth of listening um, that we were all set up to do, and then it was cancelled. And uh, anyway, we weren't able to go, so we've got all of these audio books just sitting there, not being listened to, that we're going to have to get to. Uh, but road trips are fun, and uh, road trips are really good because you uh, are looking forward to. Uh, the destination, you're looking forward to getting somewhere and maybe you're going on a holiday or you're going to see something or see friends, family, whatever it might be. But road trips are also good because you get to um, have a, a nice time along the way. Often you'll have really um, deep and meaningful conversations with people um, when you spend hours and hours in a car together and when you get to talk with one another, when you get to um, just keep on asking really deep questions and you get to know people really well when you're, when you're stuck with them for so long. So Jesus is on a road trip at the moment. And the road trip, um, as we looked at last week, it started way up in Caesarea Philippi. And he is slowly working his way down to Jerusalem. And so along the way, on the road trip, he gets asked a bunch of different questions. Um, his disciples, his followers, but also his enemies are coming up and they're, um, asking him questions. So he's going to Jerusalem because the big festival of the year is happening. It's the Passover festival. So Jerusalem has about 50,000 people in it um, in the first century when Jesus lived. During the Passover, um, it gets an extra 150,000 people come. So the population expands to about 200,000 people. I don't know how they actually fit in Jerusalem, um, certainly they wouldn't be able to do any social distancing with the population quadrupling in size. But this festival is enormous. It's um, like the Carnival of Flowers and Christmas and New Year's and, and all of the holidays like put together. It's, it's just this humongous festival that all the Jews are going to and they're going to celebrate for a week. Um, in the city of Jerusalem. We've actually got a, a video. If you're watching the video, um, you can have a look if you want to cross to that hand. Um, this is a video that shows the, the actual road that Jesus was walking along in this section of the trip. So we know that he walked um, from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. He went um, through Jericho and then walked up this treacherous um, desert road that... Uh, it was an elevation of around about 1,200 metres. And you walk up and up this um, fairly abandoned, fairly um, rough track, certainly in the wilderness, in the desert, and you're hoping that at the end you'll finally get to walk into the wonderful city of Jerusalem and be able to celebrate the Passover together. 
So along the way, he's walking up with everyone else. They're walking up this road, and this is where we're at this week. They're walking along these dusty roads, and he has an opportunity. He speaks with the crowds, he speaks with his opponents, he speaks with some of his close disciples, and I can't help but think that along this journey, he also had some moments where he was reflecting quietly on his own. Um, He probably, as you do when you're um, walking up a mountain, you get short of breath, you um, struggle along the road, and, and so, you know, the conversation kind of dies down as you're walking up and up and up, and he knew where this road led. And maybe, maybe this is a stretch, but I like to think that as he walked along this road, and as you can see, you know, Jerusalem drawing closer and closer, I, I like to think that maybe he was thinking about you and I, and about how he would be entering into this city to die for us, because he loves us. He knows that this road ends in Jerusalem. He knows that his story ends in Jerusalem. He knows that he's going there for one very clear outcome. And that is what he has already told his disciples, to be delivered over, to be killed. And so next week, we're going to see that happening. Next week, we're going to see him entering into Jerusalem, and he's going to spend a week there, and things are just going to really heat up and go crazy, and and everything's going to explode. We're going to go from him walking in, and everyone's celebrating and, and crying out his name and praising him, and then a couple of days later, they're going to be crying out this time to crucify him. And so it's a really interesting couple of chapters to see how quickly this whole city is turned on its head, There's heaps of people, everything's going on, and in the middle of it, um, the greatest story of Jesus and his plan of redemption is is occurring through the middle of it all. So this week, though, um, we're just building up to that. We're walking up this road, and Jesus is answering questions along the way. Questions are really important, aren't they? In Australia, we have question time um, for our parliament to scrutinise the government and to ask them critical questions on what they're doing and why they're doing it. We have shows like Q&A, we have talk shows where celebrities and important people sometimes are interviewed and given questions on um, you know, all sorts of things from their life to their opinions on public life and, and such. Questions are a really healthy part of life, aren't they? I tried this morning to... Um, kind of count how many questions I was asking before nine o'clock. And I got up to over 20. There were over 20 questions that I asked. Um, Just in a, I wasn't, you know, deliberately trying to ask questions. Just in in normal conversation, you ask questions to people to find out, you know, how they're going. I was was talking to Hannah and asking her, you know, how are you feeling this morning? Um, How did you sleep? Um, you know, would you like a coffee? Would you like breakfast in bed? You know, how did I? How did you marry the perfect man? These, these kinds of normal questions um, that you know just come up on a normal basis. <laughs> um, but we ask these questions. Uh, we ask all sorts of questions in normal life because that's how life works. You want to understand other people, and they want to understand you. And the way that you understand each other 
is by putting question marks at the end of your sentences. And oftentimes we ask questions to make life easier. We ask questions um, because we want to get out of hard things, and that's fair enough. We ask questions like, do we, do we really have to do this? Do we have to go shopping? Do I really have to vacuum these floors? Do we really have to peel the potatoes, or can we just leave the skin on? Um, does the lawn need to be mowed? Do I really have to do this job? Do you really need me to do that? And um, we're not the only ones who ask questions for self-motivated uh, reasons. The disciples, Jesus' followers, asked him lots of questions because they were trying to get easy answers. And what we see in this section is that Jesus doesn't, it seems like he never gives an easy answer to any of these questions. It seems like he never says, yes, you can take the shortcut, you can do it this way instead of having to do it the hard way. It seems like constantly along the way he's saying, no, there is no shortcut, there is no easy option, it is just hard work. And difficult, and I'm sorry, but that's the way of following Jesus. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, he talked about um, Christians being like schoolboys who liked to just skip to the end of the maths book to look at the answers and not work through the hard problems. And I feel like that's very targeted at me. I often open my Bible and I want easy answers. I want the shortcut. I just want to skip to the end. I want, how many times do we open up the word and and our question is, do I have to do it? (laughs) Do I have to read my Bible that much? Do I have to pray that much? How how much do I have to give? How much do I have to um, contribute to the church in, in my effort and my time and these kinds of things? And so Jesus answers a lot of these questions. And very rarely his answer is, oh, there's a shortcut way to do it. So let's look at um, the questions that we have for um, the king and the difficult answers that Jesus gives. We start off in chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. And this is a section, we're not going to read it, but uh, I encourage you to follow along in our books um, and keep on reading through and doing the devotionals and studying for yourself. We're up to day 50 today, so it's a 90-day devotional book. Today is day 50, and um, if you haven't been following along, feel free to jump back in at any point and, and read these chapters and try and just meditate on these words for yourself. I think it'll be a great thing um, for you to do. So in verses 1 to 12, um, the Pharisees actually come up, and they come to test him, and they ask him the most contentious uh, question that they can think of. It's the equivalent today of asking a politician, uh, you know, about climate change or asking them about their, the COVID-19 response. It's a, it's a question that is going to be contentious. It's going to split the crowd in two. People are going to have different opinions. People are going to um, think differently and, and think very strongly. So this was the biggest question in the first century that the Pharisees were asking. The question was, what reason is there for you to be able to divorce someone if you're married? And, I mean, we still ask that question today, don't we? People um, come up with different answers to that question. What is an appropriate situation to end a marriage, to divorce? Um, Now, I want to just point out a few things that are important to note in this section. First of all, the Pharisees were insincere here. 
the Pharisees, again, are not genuinely concerned about people whose um, lives are broken because of difficult relationships and, and you know, a, a marriage breakdown. What they're doing is they're manipulating a really hard circumstance and putting it towards Jesus to try and trick him in his words. Very similar to what he did with the, um, what the Pharisees did to the man with the withered hand. They took a man whose life was broken and ruined because of his injury and they put him into this situation to, to test Jesus, to try and trick Jesus. Um, it just shows how easy it is to get so caught up in, um, in trying to figure out the rules that you forget about the humanity of people and you forget to show that just basic human compassion and care. Um, not saying that the rules aren't important, but the rules should never um, take a place where there is no room left for showing any compassion for the actual people involved in these situations. So since this divorce question was contentious, the Pharisees are hoping to split Jesus' followers. And they're hoping that he'll have to give an answer and the followers of Jesus will get offended at what he says and they'll leave him and... Uh, you know, you kind of expect that maybe Jesus will avoid the question. Maybe he'll change the subject. Maybe he'll give an easy answer that appeases everyone. And this is what I love about reading the Gospels. Jesus does something that is really hard to do. And to be honest, I don't think I would do it in that circumstance. I just don't see myself having courage um, and the ability to speak the truth regardless of how badly people might take it. So Jesus gives an answer here and it absolutely makes me marvel. It's not an easy answer. It's a really, really tough one. And Jesus doesn't try and hide it and he doesn't try and brush over it. He just speaks the truth. He just says, this is the case. Uh, another thing to note about this passage is that um, Jesus, in his answer, clearly believes that marriage belongs to the realm and domain of God. Contrary to what our culture might say or other cultures might say, um, people always try to separate marriage from God. Um, Jesus ties marriage to God and says that these two things are inseparably linked together. Any attempt to try and separate the two um, is ultimately futile. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, number three, uh, things to note about this this interesting passage here. What Jesus said about marriage was so severe that the disciples questioned whether or not it was actually a good thing to get married in the first place. So, <laughs> we can't do a full study on marriage this morning. Um, we don't have the time to, to study it, you know, the full implications of what Jesus said here. But understand this, it's not an easy answer. And we know that because of how they responded. If it was an easy thing that Jesus said about marriage, the disciples, you know, they wouldn't have had this response. They would have said, that's great, let everyone get married, it's an easy thing. But instead they say, if that's the case, it is better not to marry. And finally, um, Jesus in this passage points beyond simply the rules and he points to ideals. And this is something that, if you're a mature Christian, you need, or if you're wanting to be a mature, a mature Christian, you need to be striving for this approach when you open uh, your Bible and when you want to learn 
uh, what God has to say. I'm not saying rules are bad. I'm not saying rules don't have a place. Jesus is clearly laying down some rules here. But he also goes beyond the rules and he says, instead of this is what you have to do, you should be even more focused on what is God's plan? What is his intent? What does he want? And so as a Christian, I need to be asking not just what are God's rules, but ultimately as well, what is God's ideal? What does God want from me? What did God create me for? And that's a sign of uh, a real maturity. The next thing that we have is um, Jesus with the children. This is another instance where the disciples are trying to turn away the children. And Jesus tells um, them that to such, to people such as these, belong the kingdom of heaven. You remember we looked at this last week in chapter 18. Jesus says you must become like a child in humility um, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is again an example of the disciples. They think the kingdom of heaven means this. Jesus is trying to show them it means something very different to what you're picturing. In verses 16 through 30, we have a question on eternal life. This is one of the more famous stories um, in Matthew. Uh, a man comes up to Jesus and he asks this. It's a brilliant question. You can't fault him for the question that he asked. If only everyone in Toowoomba was asking this question, when you talk to people on the street, when you talk to people at the supermarket, if only everyone said to you, how are you going? And also, do you know what I must do to inherit eternal life? How much easier would evangelism be if we could just naturally answer people's questions if everyone was asking that question? It's interesting here, the, the disciples in chapter 18, they asked a selfish, selfish question. They asked... Um, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then we have the Pharisees who asked a deceptive question, trying to trick Jesus. And then finally we come across a man who genuinely asks a sincere and totally appropriate question. In fact, he asks three great questions. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds and says, you've got to obey the commandments. He asks a second question. Which commandments? That's fantastic. In, a, in the first century, there were all sorts of traditions that the Pharisees had. There were all sorts of rules that people kept in addition to what the Word of God said. And he said, well, which commandments do I have to keep? Um, and Jesus points him back to five of the Ten Commandments and also you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And then he says, what do I still lack? If I've done these things, what do I still lack? I like to think that we should all be asking these three questions. If you're not a Christian yet, you should really be asking that first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That should be the question on your mind and on your lips um, as you go through day to day living without Christ. If you're a new Christian, ask yourself that second question. Which commandments do I have to keep? And if you're a mature Christian if you've been a Christian for a while, ask that third question. What do I still lack? What am I still missing? Ultimately, though, you can ask the right questions all day long and still not have it all together. Warren Wiersbe said, the rich young ruler came to the right person with the right attitude, asked the right question, received the right answer and made the wrong response. 
Jesus tells his disciples how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't this sad? You have the disciples asking a selfish question, Pharisees ask a deceptive question, finally someone asks a good question and they get a good answer and they don't like the answer and they turn away. And Jesus counters this by saying, yes, it is difficult. You do have to give away a lot. And then he finishes this section by saying, but you will receive back a hundredfold and you will inherit eternal life if you can do these things, if you do make that choice, if you do come to him. And he follows it up with a parable. And I'll be honest, it's one of the stranger parables. And um, I considered just skipping it this morning because it's a bit weird and it's very hard to understand what he's getting at. So I'm going to give you what I believe he's getting at in this parable within the context. He, he starts it off with four. And you remember, when you start a sentence with four, you're linking it back with what you just said. So he's just talked about the rewards that you will receive if you are able to truly follow him. And this is a parable about rewards, and it's a parable about God's generosity. The parable essentially goes like this. There's a a man who owns a vineyard. He goes out and he hires some workers in the morning. He says, come and, you know, um, prune the vineyards, do the work that needs to be done, and I'll pay you a denarius. Now, a denarius was a coin that was worth um, a day's wages in first century um, Jewish culture. So then he goes out a bit later, he hires some more people, and then he goes out right at the end of the day, just almost as the work is all done, and he hires some more people. And then it gets to the end of the day, and he gathers everyone around, and he's about to pay them for their worth. And you would think, being very fair, um, that he would pay the people who worked the longest, he would pay them the most. The people who worked half the day, he would pay them next. And then the people who only worked for one hour, he would pay them a little bit. But he doesn't. He pays them all a denarius. In fact, he even starts by paying the people he hired last. He pays them first. And then he goes back and eventually pays the people who he hired at the beginning. Now, the I'm sure that um, our current workplace laws would have something against this parable. I'm sure that he would be reported and that, um, you know, the ombudsman would, would get on to him and this is not fair work conditions, this is completely unfair to pay different people different amounts, um, sorry, different people the same amount for a different job. But this is the point in verse 16 of chapter 20. Chapter 20 and verse 16 says... Uh, Sorry, verse um, 15. It says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Uh, If you've got a New King James, or I think a New American Standard, it will say, um, Do you have a bad eye um, for my good? Is your eye bad uh, for my good? Now, that's a good translation, it's a literal translation, and it's a, a Jewish idiom, it's a play on words here. So when you talked about someone, ha- someone having a bad eye in the first century, you were talking about them being jealous, you are talking about them having resentment 
or covetousness of someone else and what they had. So, do you have jealousy because the master here was very generous with everyone? And I think this is the point. It's similar to the parable of the prodigal son. You remember when the prodigal son returns and the older brother is angry at the father's generosity? He's upset because the father is so forgiving and merciful and gracious. And that's the point about grace. It's not giving people what they deserve. It's giving people love and favour beyond what they have deserved. If you look out at other people and say, you're unworthy of God's grace, you're unworthy of eternal life, you you don't deserve um, the promises that God has made in the age to come, you're exactly right. They don't deserve it, and neither do you. And that's the point. You can't get upset that someone else um, doesn't deserve it because you don't deserve it either. The reward that we receive is not how... it's, It's not reflective on how good we are. It's reflective on how good... God is. And that's a hard teaching. But that means that there will be people who inherit eternal life, who have, for the most part, lived uh, an awful, um, selfish, um, even perhaps rebellious to God kind of life. And there will be people, maybe you've lived a, a good life your whole, whole life, you've never said a swear word, you've always gone to church, you've done everything good, And you can be resentful at those other people who might find salvation later in their life and who might inherit eternal life even after a life that was um, in the majority, it was lived in in a bad, selfish way. And God says, don't get angry at my generosity. Don't become jealous because God is gracious. Yes, nobody deserves this, but we should celebrate God's grace and not be angry or or jealous towards it. We move into now um, verses 17 to 19. Let's read that together. Uh, Matthew 20 verses 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus has now said this on multiple occasions. We've brought this up in um, the last couple of weeks. And every time Jesus brings this up, he adds a little bit more detail. First he says that he's going to be delivered over, then he says he's going to die. This time he says he's going to be mocked, flogged and crucified. Like he's trying to slowly introduce this concept to the disciples and tell them this is what to expect when we get to Jerusalem, but Jesus will be raised on the third day. We come now to uh, another question that's put before Jesus. And this is uh, a mum who loves her boys and um, some mums... They love standing up for their kids, don't they? Um, I'm sure the mum of James and John was the kind of mum that would march into the principal's office and make sure that they're, you know, they had the best grades and that you know, if anyone stole their lunch, that the, the thieves would be perpetrated, they would be found out and they would be punished. And This is a very, this is what we call helicopter parenting in, uh, in this section. So the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up 
And this is the question in verse 21. It says, And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Um, <laughs> I don't know how James and John felt about this. I think I'd be a bit embarrassed if my mum went up to Jesus and demanded that I get a good seat in the kingdom. Uh, but <laughs> Jesus... Jesus responds in this way. Again, he doesn't give a shortcut. He doesn't say, sure, you know, I'll give you the best tickets. You can come and sit next to me and everything will be fine. He, he gives them a difficult answer. He says this in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Remember what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, said, he prays to the Father, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he's saying here, Jesus doesn't want to drink this cup. And these, these followers, James and John, are trying to drink this cup as well. They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at the right hand and at the left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers and the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus answers their question by again pointing towards his death and saying, you're missing the picture entirely. This road goes to Jerusalem, and it ends at Golgotha, hanging by nails, crown of thorns on his head, being mocked, being whipped. <clears throat> it ends with torture. Stop you know, asking these obnoxious questions about trying to get the best seats. You are so far from understanding what's actually going on here. It's tough following Jesus, don't think that it's going to be a picnic. Don't think, well, I hope that I get the best seats in the kingdom when he's telling you that it might involve losing your life. And then finally, we end um, this section by looking at two blind men in verses 29 to 34. And this seems to be a bit out of place. I mean, Jesus has already healed blind people before. Why did Matthew think it was important to tell us about more blind men that Jesus healed? You know, there were some great questions going on here. I'm sure in the days and days of walking that they had to Jerusalem, there were many more important discussions that Jesus had, many more teachings that he could have given. So why does Matthew tell us about two blind men? Again, I don't know. Um, maybe the next time I teach through Matthew, I'll have a, a different answer. But what, what stands out to me is this, that this situation with the healing of the blind men shows the great irony that we've seen in these chapters, but in the whole book so far. The Pharisees couldn't see who Jesus was. The disciples couldn't see what it meant to follow Jesus. These great, um, these great men who were simply beggars on the side of the road, who were physically blind, they could see, first of all, that he was the son of David, the true king. And second of all, it finishes with this in verse 34. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. 
This is a great summary of the whole story of Matthew, isn't it? The wise and the intelligent have all missed Jesus. They all can't see who Jesus is, or they can't see what his kingdom is all about. And yet these poor, oppressed, rejected, outcast blind men, they not only see Jesus, but they follow Jesus. They just humbly walk um, after him and decide to trust in him. Here's our, our main point. To sum up all of the stories that we've gone through today in this whole chapter, the main point is this. Following Jesus is not an easy path, but he promises that the reward makes all the effort worthwhile. Following Jesus will impact your marriage. Following Jesus will mean becoming like a child. Following Jesus will mean potentially giving up many of your riches. Following Jesus will mean that there are other people who you deem unworthy who will receive a reward just like you. Following Jesus will mean walking to Jerusalem. Following Jesus will mean drinking the cup which he drinks. And yet the reward is worthwhile. The reward of inheriting eternal life, receiving back a hundredfold, whatever you've given up, is worthwhile. We live in a world that loves shortcuts. We use Control-Z and Control-Y on our computers. We um, have apps on our phones that try and help us um, to track calories and to track our steps. We love getting our life as easy as possible and making as many shortcuts as possible. And these two chapters say, following Jesus is not about taking shortcuts. It's about taking a hard road that leads to a life that is sacrificed for Jesus, a life that is given away in love for others. I hope you can um, continue to join us as we um, look at this exciting journey as we get to Jerusalem next week.